David Bloom is my former mentor and one-time manager of sorts. He has been running his Bloom School of Jazz since 1975. Pretty impressive. I'm mentioning him today because I'm on his email list, and I get an email 20 minutes ago titled, Moving Forward with Your Rearview Mirror. And I'm wondering, okay, what's this about? This is David. He's kind of an iconoclast in his way, cantankerous in his way. What it's about is forgetting where you came from, musically speaking, for the most part. How musicians, jazz musicians in particular, which is his primary concern, forget what they played to start with, and then just, as he says... When jazz musicians forget what they have played in the beginning of their solos, what ends up is a potpourri of disconnected random ideas. Most jazz solos are about negotiating the chord changes with little regard to the macro, storytelling aspects of it. And this is so true. I think this is subconsciously what may turn a lot of people off from jazz. They hear a bunch of disconnected ideas. They don't get the story. Now, you know I'm big on telling stories with music. And as David rightly points out later in this post, there are a couple of fail-safe storytelling techniques in an improvised solo. Take the melody of the tune and devoutly develop it in your improvised solo. Stretch it rhythmically. Maintain the shape of the contour and change the intervals. Use the melody to start phrases and end them differently. Play your own ideas in the end with the melody. That's number one. Number two, make up your own motif and devoutly develop that idea. And this goes on about how you do that. I gotta be honest, one of the reasons in my early 20s I became disillusioned with jazz, which is the music that really got me into creatively making music. I mean, I had been playing the piano since I was three or four, studying classical music since I was six, and pretty darn good at it by the time I'm a teenager. But it wasn't until the jazz bug bit me about the time I'm 14 years old that I really started practicing my ass off, and that's all I wanted to do. Play in bands, practice, practice, play in bands. Yeah, I went to high school, whatever. I could have taken that or left it, to be honest. But making music became my only concern as soon as the great jazz musicians I encountered came into my life. And yet, when I reached my early 20s, I found myself becoming bored, disillusioned with the direction of this music. It felt too much like Well, as David describes it, a potpourri of disconnected random ideas. And you start questioning the ethos of the music when you hear too much of that. Now, let me just say that the greatest jazz musicians, the Coltrane's, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, and many others, Wayne Shorter, McCoy Tyner in his prime, did the opposite. They developed themes. They told stories in their solos. But what happens somewhere along the line is musicians with secondary talent, that is talent borrowed, ideas borrowed, they pick up on what we call in jazz the licks, the phrases, the turns of phrases that seem like, well, this is jazz. I'm playing jazz now when I play this kind of phrase. 
then you feel like, hey, I'm making the changes. I'm doing the jazz thing. That's what happens when minor talents interpret, study, and imitate the music of masters. They go through the motions of creating music, make it appear to the uninitiated that, wow, he's a jazzer. And what Bloom so rightly points out is that this is a recipe for a musical miasma, a recipe for going nowhere, and a recipe for killing an art form, really, when you think about it. So what David is really talking about, and what I'm, I guess, always talking about in these episodes is theme, storytelling, narrative. As I've said over and over and over in episodes like Maximal Minimalism, where I preach the gospel of melody and theme versus the kind of repetitious abyss of most minimalism, what I'm really talking about is what David is saying here. The ability to look back at what you've done. Remember where you came from. This, I suppose, is also a philosophy of life, not forgetting your roots, being disconnected. But music is very much a compressed art form. Sure, you can have long operas. You can have Wagnerian operas. You could have long John Coltrane solos. But in the end, it's not like life. It's telling stories about life and death. And stories, as I've said, too many times have to have structure, beginning, middle, and end. And whether the music is composed or improvised, it makes absolutely no difference. Nobody should care if you're improvising as opposed to playing a note-for-note rendition of some previously composed piece of music. The means of making music don't matter, shouldn't matter to the listener. It's the result that matters. Are you telling a story? So what I did there was took what I remembered of my jazz lick. I said, it's like, hey, I'm playing jazz now, and tried to develop it thematically, using it as a means to tell a story. Now, truth be told, I don't remember exactly what it was that I started with there, because I talked for several minutes in between. But the point is, the theme itself, in a way, does not matter at all. Sure, there are themes that are more dramatic, more memorable, more prone to bring out certain emotions. But the fact is, any collection of notes, short collection of notes usually, can be a theme. Now, I wouldn't say that's true of any. That's, I should back up. This is not going to work as a theme to develop. Well, serialists, 12-tone folks may disagree. 
your people turning off the podcast as I go further into that. A pointillistic composer like Anton Webern, one of Schoenberg's students, would build very short pieces of music out of But the aim there is not so much storytelling as a kind of atmospheric psychosis, an inward state so severe that story is not the point. Okay, I get that point, that not all music has to tell a story, but musicians, improvisers, composers, and even classical musicians who are just playing something that was written by a great composer, a Beethoven sonata, a Chopin prelude. Even they have to tell the story inherent in the written notes. Say you're playing a Beethoven sonata, and you're just playing the notes as a series of scales and exercises, you're missing the narrative. If you're just playing it to prove your technique at being able to play a Beethoven sonata or a Chopin etude or a Rachmaninoff concerto, you can easily not tell the story that's already written for you. But my point is, a pointillistic approach or an impressionistic approach without some kind of theme, some kind of collection of notes that is identifiable, that we can look back on, develop, move away from, to another theme, a sub-theme perhaps, then go back to the main theme. Without that, music can't really tell a story in its own right. It can, as a lot of minimalism, like Philip Glass, work very well as background music, as underscoring for a primary story. It is for this reason that Philip Glass's music is used a lot in movies. It doesn't need, in that case, to carry the story. It just sort of colors the story, gives it some rhythmic and harmonic movement that helps move the story along. But music by itself, meaning music in the foreground, not in the background, never works for any extended time unless there's a story. And the only way, the tried and true way to tell a story, as in all art forms, is with theme.
Now, you really can get carried away with this idea, like get stuck on a theme and not know where to go with it. That's why there are sub-themes, secondary themes and tertiary themes, themes that may relate to the primary theme or may not or may relate in a way that most people don't understand, but psychologically there's a connection, some emotional connection. So with my little arbitrary theme there, I found myself, I'm getting kind of stuck on this. I find myself getting stuck on themes all the time. If anything, I have the opposite problem of what David talks about. I'm so pro-thematic that I have a hard time leaving my primary theme. And I often find myself improvising and thinking, okay, how am I going to get out of this particular thematic trap? Well, what I did right there was... I just took the end of the theme and built on that. That's one way of getting out of that. That's connecting the end of a theme to the beginning of a new theme. Alighting themes, in a sense. Another method is what I just did there, make a mistake. I went too far. Instead of going, I went too far down. That kind of extends this secondary theme out. So I kind of haphazardly there started bringing back the main theme with these secondary themes that, in retrospect, may not have been different enough from the main thing. But so let's do this again. Let's try to go somewhere 
completely different from that main thing. Uh, let me, what's the main theme again? Okay, we're getting somewhere here. Again, I brought back the main theme over this secondary theme. But what you'll notice about both of these themes, then, is that they're both very simple. Uh, consisting of just a few notes each. One of them has four different notes... That's the first theme. Five, sorry. And then the second theme is even less. Speaking of second themes, secondary themes, I want to get back to David's point number two under fail-safe storytelling techniques. Number two, make up your own motif and devoutly develop that idea, under which he writes, this will be difficult at first because most improvisers love the license to play whatever they feel like playing. But if your goal is arriving at the future and not being cursed with reruns, you will need to do things differently. If you do the recommended techniques, you will arrive at a new place with a much improved sticky storytelling. Never forget to look through your rearview mirror to successfully move forward. Now, this idea of coming up with your own theme in the context of a jazz tune, not primarily what I do anymore. I will be releasing um, an album sometime in the next year to 20 years of my interpretation, contrapuntal interpretation, thematic interpretation of John Coltrane's Giant Steps. And I'll do occasional takes on standard jazz tunes or standard American pop songs. But my concern mostly is not about a jazz solo, taking a tune like All the Things You Are. So on. I don't really have much interest in doing that for reasons I sort of alluded to earlier. But 
if you are working within that construct of a so-called jazz solo, David's point here is really spot on. Most improvisers love the license to play whatever they feel like playing, he says. Now, I remember when I first started learning jazz and learning to play it in a group context with a bass and drums and others. There is always this feeling of when it's your turn to solo. It's like, yay, I get to do whatever I want now. And there is a freedom to that that is so exciting that you could easily get carried away with it. But that freedom is also a trap. It's a kind of freedom to anarchy. I'm just going to run around and do whatever I want. Now, that may be interesting to you. That may be fun to you, as David kind of alludes to. But to the listener, they may have no idea where you're going. But the second point he makes here about making up your own motif, it does remind me of a couple of things. One is there are great jazz solos in which the the improvisation has absolutely nothing apparently to do with the theme of the song they're playing. And you notice it right away. I'm thinking of, for some reason, some Cannonball Adderley solos. He does this very well. And what it is, I think, is it's kind of like that second theme, that secondary theme in classical music in sonata form, which I've spoken about quite a bit in earlier episodes, where the first theme is so dominant the theme of the tune, that sometimes you simply have to ignore it and come up with something entirely different as contrast. It's still a part of the larger story of that song with its improvisations, but the theme itself is so dominant in some way that it's time to move on. Mozart does this a lot. Beethoven does it, where uh, you have this dominant main theme, and then when it comes time to develop it in the so-called development section of a sonata form, whether it's symphony, piano, or whatever, sometimes the composer will completely ignore the main theme just because it's already been kind of played out and it's so dominant that it's time for contrast. And great jazz musicians can pull this off as well. There's a inner sense that enough of the main theme, time to move on to something else, then we'll come back to it.
Okay, so there, I got tired of both the first and second theme and let a third theme sort of emerge out of the interplay between the first and second theme. It was just a simple scale pattern. One of the things I must admit that happens when I come up with a theme is I immediately connect it to like 17 other things. Either I've played or somebody else wrote or somebody else played. That reminds me of Richard Rogers, Rogers and Hart's tune, You Are Too Beautiful. Excuse the mistakes. Um, so I I started playing that and heard that tune. I heard another Randy Weston, a favorite pianist of mine, from some album called African Night, which I don't even think is available anymore, a solo piano album. So kind of vaguely related to my little tertiary, secondary, whatever you want to call it, theme. But this is going on in my head. Oh, Randy Weston. Ah, Richard Rogers. And uh, I'm trying to uh, both embrace and avoid that connection at the same time. What does this have to do with David's strong admonishment to jazz musicians? Never forget to look through your rearview mirror to successfully move forward. Well, it it kind of takes it to another level. Looking through your rearview mirror includes your connection to the past, not only of what you've played, but what's been written and played before you. So in this case, with my my third... A simple scale up and down, five notes. With that theme, I was remembering something long ago in my own past that was written by somebody else. I probably learned the song You Are Too Beautiful by Richard Rogers when I was 16, and I remember hearing it actually in a Woody Allen movie, and it was played in a very particular way. Maybe it was Manhattan or something. I don't know. And Woody Allen, I know I'm not supposed to mention his name anymore, but again, I'm not into erasing people who may have done awful things. Forget about that. Delete that. I'm deleting that line. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Woody Allen had this penchant for using music only from like up to 1940. He was very old-fashioned in his musical taste, but you got to hear a lot of classic jazz and classic American songbooks songs. And that may have been where I first heard it. So I have this collection of memories around just that song. And I remember playing it at parties, at cocktail parties of rich people when I'm a teenager. And I remember not only that, but I remember 20, 30 years later trying to come up with my own take on that song, a contrapuntal version of it.
So there's that. That's probably something I started working on in my 40s. And then I'm thinking of the Randy Weston tune, which I probably learned when I was 16 or 17 as well. And I was really taken by his approach in the tune because of its both simplicity and its implied counterpoint that is something that I fell in love with from Bach. So now I'm bringing Bach into this equation. So my point here is rearview mirror that David speaks of is not just your improvised solo in the moment. What did you just play? How are you going to develop it? What are the techniques to develop it? But your entire history, your memory of people who influenced you, things like a Woody Allen movie, all of these things are there. And it if you draw on it in a creative way, you are potentially creating something very rich, a rich story. This is what David wants jazz improvisers to strive for, and he's been talking about this for years. Interestingly, when I was studying with David back in 1978, really three years after 78, 79, 80, I think, or somewhere around there. It was in my junior and and or senior year in high school and then after that for a little while before I inevitably hopped off to college. I have many memories of going up to the Bloom School of Jazz on Rush Street in Chicago above a bar. One of them is David in that time and if he listens to this, which he probably won't cuz that's David as well. He'd get up there in his little booth where he could record four tracks or eight tracks or whatever it was and play records and they were real records lps of like art blakey and the jazz messenger and david would he was a proselytizer as then as he is now he was in his late 20s he would say things like don't look back now that seems to be the exact opposite of what he's saying here Don't look back. Art Blakey, this great jazz drummer who had all these great bands with tons of just incredible jazz musicians who came through the school of Art Blakey. I remember him saying this. Always look forward in your solos. Forward momentum, he would speak of. And he had books, and he still has books, about how to do this. But he wasn't saying, at least to me back then, you know, also look back. But he was implying it because all of the techniques he was teaching, and still teaches, I assume, were about developing your ideas, not just playing licks, not just playing scales. I think, like me, he's just refined his approach to teaching it, in his case, in my case, in how I compose and improvise. I was thinking these things back then, too, when I was 16 or 17. The theme. Theme is everything. What you do with it is what matters. The theme itself could be, as I said earlier, arbitrary, an arbitrary collection of notes. The development of that theme, the story, itself can have an arbitrariness to it, but it must look back. It must always keep in mind the start. Now, some screenwriters and novelists and TV writers and so on, sometimes they will come up with the conclusion first, the end. Where is this story going? And then work their way backwards. That can work up to a point, though I do have to say I've tried this as a screenwriter myself, and there's a danger in that, in that you miss the journey. You could start with the end, 
where is this going to end, this story? And then work your way back. And then once you work your way through the story, the end will probably change too. Whatever method works. Yesterday, I was thinking about this, and I thought, well, what if I start with the end of a composition first and see where that went? So let's try it. Here's the end. to remember that. Let's see what happens.
Okay, I actually forgot how what my end was going to be. Close enough. Hey, it's Peter Saltzman. If you love improvisations on the ledge, please be so kind as to spread the word, give it five stars, and a great review. And to keep up to date with all of my activities, including this podcast, new albums, performances, and music education, be sure to visit my website at petersaltzman.com.